Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Histories of Britain, from the Romans to the Vikings, with Thomas Williams, and his new book, Lost Realms. Dr Thomas Williams is the author of the best-selling and critically acclaimed Viking Britain and Viking London. He is a former British Museum curator and a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of London and has taught at the University of Cambridge. And today we're going to talk about Thomas's latest book, which is Lost Realms, Histories of Britain from the Romans to the Vikings. Thomas, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, thank you for having me. So there's a book about the various, some of the kingdoms that existed in that period that you know people liked or used to call the Dark Ages. We'll get to that a little bit later on. And anybody that's been to school in this country in the past 50 years will know that the English-speaking people, the English people rather than the British people of this period, are called the Anglo-Saxons. And now, as you talk about in the book, in an afterword, this has started to become a rather problematic framing. So let's talk about why. Yeah. No, you're quite right to say it's a fairly recent development that this term has become controversial and it's very thoroughly embedded, as you say, in public understandings of the period and in the scholarly literature. But the issue with it, I think, is one that if you want to, you can trace all the way back through to the earliest historical records we have. In fact, the term Anglo-Saxon is a genuine descriptor that is used in the early medieval period. Um, Now, that's probably a good point to acknowledge at the outset. Uh, It first appears in the 8th century used by continental writers and then it becomes a term that's picked up by the West Saxon king Alfred in the 9th century and it's part of a program on his part to meld together the various different ethnic identities that he was claiming kingship over, Uh, in particular those people who identified as Saxons and those people who identified as Angles, those being descriptors that were applied by Bede back in the 8th century to various migrant groups who'd come across the North Sea from what's now northern Germany, the Low Countries and southern Scandinavia. Now, the problem with that is that Bede himself was writing a history with a very specific bias in mind. It's an oversimplification for one thing. There are many other people other than Angles and Saxons who we know migrated to this island 
and Bede was writing what was essentially a sort of proto-nationalist version of the, uh, the development of Christianity in what is now England. Nevertheless, as I say, it's a term that has its roots in the early medieval period, however problematic they may be from the outset. The reason it's become so contentious recently is that it, it was picked up mainly in 19th century scholarship, although it had been current for a long, long time. And ideas were attached to the concept of Anglo-Saxonness that it had never previously had. So specifically, this all came about during a period in which the British, particularly the English, were looking for reasons to explain and sort of justify why it was that they found themselves in possession of the, the largest empire the world had ever known. And in line with the kind of, frankly, racist science uh, of the time, they found it in their ancestry and looked back to the Anglo-Saxons as the sort of germ, the, the nucleus of what was then contemporary English success, right? So they saw being an Anglo-Saxon as being superior and conferring qualities that, that meant that you know, the British Empire effectively was an inevitable consequence simply of their genetics. It was a really, really popular idea. It cuts across political boundaries. You know, people like William Morris, the, the socialist, was firmly wedded to this, as was Thomas Carlyle, staunch conservatives, liberal politicians likewise. And it has a legacy that was carried through the, the migration of, of English-speaking people all over the world. And you can see the effects of it in you know, ideas around manifest destiny, for example, in the United States, this, this notion that the white settlers had a, a divinely ordained mandate to increase their, their rule over other peoples from you know, sea to shining sea and all, all that sort of thing. And uh, it's recently sort of been brought to the fore that the term Anglo-Saxon now carries with it this huge amount of baggage and continues to be used by people who would promote that kind of outdated uh, racist thinking about ethnicity and about, about heredity. I mean, it falls down on a number of obvious points, not least the fact that you know, Britain no longer has an empire of, of any kind, really. So if that were the, the germ of it, then one would think that it would still be in existence. And of course it isn't. But uh, yes, I think, I think that, that probably covers it in maybe even greater detail than was necessary. But well, I wanted to raise the, you know, the idea of the, you know, the racial categoryness of it, because we're going to come back to something else at the end that, you know, that will raise that again. Let's talk about the very idea then of the Dark Ages. Now, I think you're not as worried about the term the Dark Ages as a lot of people seem to be, but it, it is also something that people frown upon. But nowadays, there's the concept of calling this early medieval period the Dark Ages. And also, why is it out of that comes, why is this age so difficult to study? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it's a problematic term for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's vague and amorphous for, for one, and we have to be very clear about what we're using it to describe. I mean, I, I've, I've seen the term Dark Ages used to describe the entire medieval period all the way through to, you know, the, the Battle of Hastings. It can also be used to apply to the British history between the Romans and the Vikings. It can be used only for the two centuries after the collapse of the Roman administration. So it's, it's, it's imprecise, I suppose, in that sense. And it's generally been disliked, I think, mainly by archaeologists and, and literary scholars who quite rightly want to emphasise the extraordinary achievements of people working through those centuries. 
And, you know, we, we have wonderful examples of metalwork, of manuscript illumination, of vernacular poetry that were produced in that period, however, you know, depending on how we define the period. The problem is that from a historian's perspective, the first two centuries in particular are pretty much a vacuum when it comes to good, credible, contemporary written records. So although we have evidence for, for what people were, were making and, and where they were living and to some degree what they may have been doing, the details of how, you know, of the politics, of the, the, of the, the narrative of, of history is simply absent in all but the broadest brush terms. So in the book, you look at nine vanished kingdoms, and these are, you know, sort of small and often overlooked kingdoms that you've chosen to look at. But when we, when we think of that period of British history, there's a set of kingdoms that existed that's called the Heptarchy. Um, can you tell us, first of all, what that is? Right, yeah. So the Heptarchy is a, a, a term that's anachronistic. It, it's not a, a term contemporary with the period, but it, it, it's used to describe the seven major kingdoms that um, the monastic writer Bede describes in the 8th century as being the sort of primary powers of his day. And those are uh, Northumbria, Wessex, Mercia, East Anglia, Kent, Sussex, and Essex. Now, they are extremely unequal in, in size and in influence, even in the, the terms of that group of seven. The problem is that there were never only seven kingdoms, and um, it completely ignores the huge number of other political units that existed beyond the bounds of the English-speaking world in, on the island of Britain. But again, it's, it's one of those ideas that's had a, a very long and sort of tenacious hold on the imagination. And it's a sort of an easy way, I think, for people to understand what may have been going on in a period that is otherwise very difficult to understand. But um, as I've tried to describe in the book, it, it's important, I think, to problematize this a, a little bit. You talk about a document that lists, uh, a sort of contemporary document that lists uh, a lot of the, the kingdoms and the sort of tribal groupings, depending on size, and that's called the Tribal Hydage document. Tell us something more about that. Okay, yeah. So the Tribal Hydage is, as you say, it's a list of political units or, or ethnic groups. It doesn't really specify what exactly they are, and it enumerates the number of hides a hide being a unit of land, an economic measure of a unit of land, typically understood as the amount of land needed to support a single farmstead. And they range in size with the largest kingdoms, the top of the list, including Wessex, Mercia, and um, East Anglia. And it, it goes down the list to very, very small political groups indeed, some of which exist to modern uh, history as, as just names. We know absolutely nothing about them, even where they may have been in some cases. Let's talk about one of the, I want to talk about three or four of the, um, of the, the nine kingdoms that you talk about in the book, if we, if we have time. And I think the first one I want to talk about is one that illustrates what you've just said, that there's, there's virtually nothing extant that gives any indication of, of where it was or that it existed. And that's mm. Elmet. So tell us, where that was and, and what we do know. 
Okay, so the Kingdom of Elmet is a group that's listed in the tribal hideage. And I should say, actually, I, I didn't mention this when I was describing the document, that the purpose, we believe, of the tribal hideage is to evaluate the um, economic potential of these, these units for probably the purposes of gathering tribute. So we, we tend to imagine that it was produced either in Mercia or in Northumbria as a way of assessing how much tribute could reasonably be expected to be extracted from these, these territorial units. Now, Elmet is uh, listed pretty low down. Yeah, I think it's only 600 hides, which is, which is trifling compared to, to even some of the other smaller kingdoms. The Kingdom of Essex, for example, is listed at 7,000. So yeah, Elmet is very, very, very small at the time that the tribal hideage document is, is put together. Beyond that one sort of snippet of information that, that regarding its existence, its, its life in historical sources is, as you say, vanishingly slight. We have a reference to the last king of Elmed, a, a chap called Keredic, and his role in, in greater political events to do with the Kingdom of Northumbria and East Anglia. The upshot of which seemed to be that he was dispossessed of his of his kingdom and driven driven out during the the conquest of, of Elmet around the beginning of the seventh century by the Northumbrians. Um, so the only time we really see Elmet is when it's being snuffed out, effectively in in a, in a historical sense. There is also very little in the way of archaeology to pin down exactly where it may have been. So we have to go on sort of inferences some of which are, are contained in the tribal hydrogen itself. So the list seems to position these tribal groups in a sort of rough order. Elmet falls between the Pexetna, the, the, the people of the Peak District, and the people of Lindsay in, in North Lincolnshire. So we have this sense that it's somewhere in the you know, southern Pennines, West Riding of, of Yorkshire, that kind of neck of the woods. There are oblique references that, that Bede throws around. He talks about um, the forest of Elmet being somewhere near Leeds, for example, and that, that helps us to, to sort of corroborate what we already suspect from the tribal hideage. Uh, and then there are place names. Now, these are names that have been coined in Old English by communities who are incoming communities, or, or at least they are renaming a landscape in a, in a new language, uh, the English language, and describing places as being in Elmet, in their place. As a Barwick in Elmet, for example. Several of these along what we think is probably the, the eastern border of this region. The, the, the idea being that if you're, if you're naming somewhere as being in Elmet, it implies that wherever you are, or wherever you're coming from, is not in Elmet, because otherwise there'd be no need to, to specify. Beyond that, we have other place names that imply the presence of non-English-speaking communities who were still there at the time that these English-speaking communities are coming in and renaming things. So you have a number of place names that include the Old English term for Britain, which is uh, Wales, which means foreigner, and it's the origin of the, the modern English Welsh. Uh, others that in include the, the, the British sort of self-determinative word Cumbra, so the, the, the Cumbri, the, the Welsh word for themselves. And that all suggests that there are British-speaking people who are in place in the West Riding, uh, and we assume that those are the inhabitants of Elmet. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Thomas Williams. We're talking about his book, Lost Realms, Histories of Britain from the Romans to the Vikings. And Thomas, next, I want to talk about the, the former kingdom of Dumnonia, which is basically roughly Cornwall and Devon. This is an example of when we think of Rome, you know, the Roman legions leaving Britain and abandoning the cities that they basically were just left to rot and people just got on with their lives in other ways and basically didn't carry on using the the Roman infrastructure, which always seems crazy to me. But Domnonia is an example of somewhere where they did sort of carry on a sort of Roman lifestyle, didn't they? Yeah, and it's it's intriguing, really, because in many ways... The epicentre of the Domnonian kingdom is, is not in the most Romanized parts of Devon and Cornwall. If, if you were looking for you know, Roman infrastructure, you'd find it in, in Exeter, for example, where there's no real evidence that Exeter was maintained to the standards, anything like the standards that it had been during the Roman period. But it's in the, the far west, in the, in the Cornwall Peninsula, that ideas about Romanness and Roman behaviour and Roman habits have a really, really strong grip or seem to have a really strong grip on on local uh the local powers that be the most 
famous site, the most extraordinary archaeology, comes from the, the fortress uh, Tintagel. Now, Tintagel can be quite a misleading um, experience for anyone who visits it cold without any background to it, because it is also the site of a, a later medieval castle. So you have to sort of imagine that away. But that castle was built on the site of a, of a citadel that dates to the, the, uh, the 6th uh, and 7th centuries. Uh, and from it has been uncovered a huge amount of imported Roman pottery. Now, a lot of that is amphorae, so uh, storage containers, basically, that would have contained wine, olive oil, as well as a lot of very high-quality Mediterranean-produced tableware. Uh, and so what we seem to be seeing at Tintagel is the continued links, trading links, with what was left of the Roman Empire and its offshoots, uh, and they're still bringing in luxuries like wine, like olive oil, from the Mediterranean and trying the best they can to live like Romans or, or like, or, or how they imagine Romans to have and just to still be living out in, in the Eastern Mediterranean. I want to talk about the Kingdom of Essex for a bit. That's, that's where I live and have lived for the last 30 years. In fact, at one point, I lived about five minutes walk away from the site of Prittlewell that you talk about in the book. Ah. So, yeah, let's talk about Essex, particularly the, um, the site at Mucking on the Thames, mm. which was this enormous archaeological dig. And basically, the idea of the East Saxons, as were, as... Mm immigrants as new immigrants into the country and how they bought some of their own rights with them and then also adopted the rights in terms and how that can be seen in the diggings at mucking yeah so it's, it's really interesting that the archaeology from the east of england in general is the the place where we have the best most incontrovertible evidence for the presence of people who came from the low countries northern germany and scandinavia we see, for example, the appearance of the cremation rite. So rather than being buried in a grave in the Roman fashion, people start to be buried, or rather they, they start to be um, interred. They have cremated remains in earthenware jars following a, a, a ritual of cremation. We also start to see distinctively northern European art and jewellery styles in the objects with which people are being buried. And this change is not one that you can explain away just through sort of cultural interchange or, you know, it was just a fashion. There are definitely people who are making that crossing and, and, and appearing in Eastern England and setting up either new communities or integrating with existing communities. That's the first thing to say about that. The second thing to say is that although that is very true, it's not the entire picture. Because what we also see is, particularly in some of the oldest graves in these new cemeteries, a lot of people who are being buried with late Roman and British-style objects and being buried in a manner that's entirely consistent with a late Roman burial practice. So the, the easiest way to explain this is to say, well, look, I mean, unless we believe verbatim, the accounts of, of writers like Bede and Gildas, that this was a, a genocidal extermination perpetrated by Angles and, and Saxons who migrated across the North Sea. What we're seeing in these cemeteries is a, a coming together of different ethnic groups and over time the development of new ethnic identities. And I, I think that's pretty clear in, in Essex. 
that there is a lot of late Roman influence that, that hangs around and is, is integrated into what becomes a, a Saxon identity. And just one other of the kingdoms then, and I said I wanted to bring us back, we talked about the problematic use of Anglo-Saxon at the beginning, and I want to talk about the um, kingdom of Fortriu in the north Ooh. of Scotland, which was the home of the, um, of the Picts. And we can see the Picts being used in the, you know, in the 19th century and later on in exactly the same way as a sort of racial category to describe another. And so tell us who the Picts were. Actually, that's sort of a trick question, really, because as you talk about in the book, there are many people who were the Picts. Yes, I, I, think, I think that's right. The Problem of the Picts is a, I mean, that's the title of a, a seminal book by um, Wainwright. But yes, this search for the origin of the Picts has been something that's consumed archaeologists and historians for, for generations. But actually looking at, if you look at the historical record, that it seems pretty clear that from the Roman period onwards, there are a huge number of different tribal groups in the north of Britain. And they're, they're sort of amalgamation into a single identity, a, a single Pictish identity, something that happens quite quite late on and the, the the roots of their popular image as i think it's fair to say is a sort of howling mass of, of woad painted barbarians is something that comes from from roman writers really early on and it's, it's picked up on by other writers in the, the early middle ages and you know it never really goes away the problem for the picts really is that they were not a conventionally literate society for most of their history. So everything we know about them that can be constructed into any kind of historical narrative comes from other sources, whether those are Irish or, or English. And so there's an awful lot of bias and, and mis, misdirection about the Picts, quite, quite intentionally, I think, on the part of writers like Bede. What we do have from that, that, northern, that northern realm is an extraordinary artistic legacy particularly in the stone carvings, the, the Pictish symbol stones, which left a mark not just, on, um, not just physically on, on stone inscriptions, but also fed into artistic traditions in, in northern Britain more generally. So I've been talking to Thomas Williams. We've been talking about his book, Lost Realms, Histories of Britain from the Romans to the Vikings. And it's out in the UK from William Collins. Thomas, thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about it. It's been an absolute pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 